You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. The sale of marijuana is even more difficult to detect and halt than the traffic in drugs such as opium, morphine, and heroin. And more vicious, more deadly even than these soul-destroying drugs is the menace of marijuana. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Over the last two episodes, we've been exploring the topic of cannabis safety and harm reduction. We explored the toxicity of some of the major chemical constituents of cannabis, how cannabis can interact with medications, and contaminants that can be found in cannabis products. Now for this third and final part of the series, we're going to be focusing on the topics of teen cannabis use before we dive into some of the ways that cannabis users can actually minimize some of the risks that we've been talking about in these episodes. So here we go, the third and final part of our series where we explore the critical question, is cannabis safe? What are the risks of exposing children to cannabis at an early age? As you might imagine, this is a very complicated question. Now, for this episode, we're going to ignore the topics of cannabis use during pregnancy, while breastfeeding, or the medical use of cannabis in children. We'll explore those topics in other episodes, but for this episode, we're going to focus on looking at the health risks of adolescent cannabis use during teenage years. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Kids today have become very wary of drug education of any kind, primarily because kids have been exposed to tales of exaggerated harms or even outright lies about drug use for decades as part of prohibition and abstinence-based drug education programs. So in 1986, you could go in and lie to kids and right. kind of like say whatever you wanted, but now they have Google. This is Matt Vogel health and wellness educator that's spent a lot of his time focusing on teaching high schoolers and college day students about substance use and harm reduction strategies. Right. right. So they have they, their cell phones. Yeah. They can, yeah. They, they can, can fact, fact check, check you in yep. the moment. And it's, it's interesting because a couple of years ago I had a, a situation where I was presenting to a private high school to the seniors and, a, and early on in the, in the session, a student, he, he asked, he said, does, does, does cannabis cause lung cancer? Hmm. And I kind of usually when that question comes up really early, it signals to me that someone has done their own research on that and they want to kind of get a sense of it. So I was just really straightforward. I said, you know, we don't have data right now that shows that uh, we, we, we show that with chronic use, there is an increase in kind of, you know, lung infections and people get sick more and they have a mm-hmm. cough and other things like that. There's <laughs> chronic bronchitis that can occur, but we don't have data around that shows it causes lung cancer per se. I said we may in the future, especially if people are smoking concentrates a lot in in a chronic way, we don't know exactly what that's going to entail. But right now that's where we're at. And and it was really interesting. So after the, then we had the the whole session, there was really good discussion, good conversation. And at the end he came up and a lot of students sometimes will have questions after and they'll talk to me. And he said, Hey, I I asked you that question to see if you were full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's an interesting that, that kind of testing the waters out to see, can I trust this person? 
where are they at? And I also would say if you critique the Nancy Reagan, just say no, it doesn't mean that you're just say yes. Right. Right. That there, there's people think that, that I'll, I'll, well, you're giving permission or being condoning this type of thing. Not at all. You know, it's, it's really important to think, to, to, to holistically think critically about this entire issue. Um, but if we go in, you know, with, you know, uh, you know, fire and brimstone, and and that's all the only approach we're going to take. It's generally not very valuable. Um, and, and that said, I have concerns about young people, especially adolescents, using high potency cannabis products and sure. smoking dabs and other things. I mean, there's issues with that. I think that are very real that we need to critique and think about especially at that age, especially with new emerging research about the brain and brain development and mm -hmm. the different and the, and the new products around cannabis, more potent products. So it's, it's something we, we have to think about and can't get completely dogmatic about. When it comes to cannabis, kids have been told a lot of things. They've been told it'll kill their brain cells, that it'll lead to schizophrenia or psychosis, it'll make them lazy or stupid, or even cause them to move on to other drugs like cocaine or heroin. Well, it should first be pointed out that there are big differences between acute or just the occasional cannabis use and chronic or regular cannabis use. In general, acute cannabis use is pretty safe physiologically, with the biggest risks being risks of motor discoordination, which is why it's really not a good idea to try to drive after using THC-rich cannabis. Let's go, Jack. I'm red hot. Better be careful how you drive it. The first thing you know, you'll be ice cold. And then also memory disruption and psychological distress like fear or paranoia. However, most of the major risks that adolescents learn about cannabis are associated with chronic or repeated cannabis use. While chronic cannabis use can alter the way the brain functions, and we definitely need to understand the consequences of that more, to say that it kills brain cells is a little dishonest. Yes, chronic cannabis use can definitely change the way the brain works. It can make certain areas of the brain less active, while also making other areas of the brain more active. But this is a complicated puzzle. In fact, in some cases, cannabis can actually encourage new brain cells to grow in a process called neurogenesis. While cannabis can exacerbate or reveal underlying mental health problems in adolescents, there's not strong evidence that it actually causes those problems. Typically, someone has to have a genetic predisposition to mental health problems, and cannabis can act as a precipitating event to make those mental health issues reveal themselves. And the only time that cannabis really seems to act as a gateway drug to other drugs seems to be when users are exposed to those other drugs on the black market. Now, the issue of adolescent cannabis use in IQ is a bit more complicated problem. Research has confirmed that there does not seem to be a link between cannabis use and low IQ, but there does seem to be a link between early onset cannabis use and poor cognitive performance. If you dig through the research, a common theme will emerge. You know, the issue is that THC in cannabis can, in some people, interfere with the learning process by disrupting attention and memory primarily. Ultimately, users that are affected in this way have to work harder to perform as well as they typically would without cannabis. But a lot of these possible outcomes are difficult to assess because there's a lot of different variables that affect a person's cognitive development, including things like social factors, uh, concurrent drug use like alcohol use, and underlying mental health disorders, just to name a few. In addition, everyone responds to cannabis differently. 
There are also a wide variety of cannabis products with different health risks associated with each of them. It has to be noted here that the context of cannabis use has a lot to do with outcomes. There are children, teens, and adults throughout the world with qualifying medical conditions that are using cannabis medically and exhibiting very few adverse events. In addition, CBD-rich cannabis or cannabis products that don't have intoxicating effects don't present the same psychological health risks as THC-rich cannabis products. Dose is also a really important factor to consider. Lower dosages of either THC or CBD will present fewer risks than higher doses. So if cannabis can be used responsibly in a way that minimizes adverse events, what does that type of use look like? And when does cannabis use become cannabis abuse? You know, the question between use and abuse gets really tricky um, because we it's really hard to standardize. So with alcohol right now, for example, we could say, someone could say, well, what is adult responsible use of alcohol? And you can give all these things around risk reduction and never letting your blood alcohol content get above 0.06 <laughs> and drink, make sure you're hydrated and drinking water. You never drive a car, things like that, right? We, we know this, right? We have a number on it really for around BAC, essentially not letting that point of diminishing returns, right? 0.055 to 0.06. That's where beyond that, you're going beyond the buzz point. We can really put that as a demarcation. That gets tricky with cannabis, right? Because it's almost impossible. What's the terpene profile? When was it harvested? Were, were the trichomes amber color or were they cloudy, right? Are now is it more sedating because there's more CBN and the THC started to degrade based on when the person harvested it, regardless if it's a sativa or indica? Uh, what if the THC level is... 15% versus 25%. Do you take, is it one hit or two hits or 10 or one hit of a concentrate? It's almost impossible to quantify that based on all these factors that are playing into it. So I love this question. I'll ask young people, particularly, if, especially if I've, I used to teach a class like for conduct, if students got caught smoking cannabis on uh. campus. So I know they're already have experience with it or use it. I would ask the students, what does adult responsible use of cannabis look like? What if you had to describe that to someone? And that is a tough question for people to answer because it's complicated. It, you, it's harder to put this like quantifiable number on it and so again, it's looking at it from kind of these different personal factors and yeah, it's, 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 it's a very complicated one. One thing I really appreciated about my conversation with Matt was his attention to just how complicated this topic is and that there's really not a one size fits all answer regarding teen cannabis use and the potential risks involved. Even just finding reputable information about cannabis can be challenging in this age of internet headlines and memes there's nuance to it, right? There's nuance to this entire conversation around cannabis, but people love things in kind of, we're in this, this time where it's kind of like, I, you know, we get our information from a headline on social media, let alone going to an article that wrote about, th that came up with that headline, right. and then let alone going to the research article that informed that pop culture article. It's not really happening. Every, everything is kind of like this you know, we're getting information from headlines and memes. Just the, yesterday, my daughter was like, hey, did you know Joe Rogan's running for president in 2020? I was like, that's not happening. She's like, oh, I saw a meme about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh, <laughs> man. Get, please do not get your information from memes. And I do not think that's true at all. I've heard nothing about that. So it's like, 
it, it's just interesting what I have found, and I talk about this quite a bit whenever I present to whatever age group, I talk about confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. And I say of a confirmation bias essentially is, you know, we seek out and find information and research that already confirms our pre-existing beliefs and ideas about something. And we do this politically. We do it with a lot of things. Cannabis is really prominent with that. Um, but we do it, we do this with so many things. So like, like most things, it's not black and white, right? There's complicated aspects to it. And that's for me, when I do any kind of education specifically, when I'm doing it with like high schoolers or or college, young college students, I ask them to really think critically about health and wellness and who they are as people. That to me, it's like, I have this flow chart that I have, um, if you're making a decision about substance use and mm. just all these questions that no one ever, I don't think a lot of times we're asking young people to think about, you know, what are, where am I at mentally, physically, and socially in my health right now? How will this decision I'm making impact that? What's the purity? What's the dosage? Uh, who am I going to be with? What's the, what's my mindset going into it? What's the setting I'm going to be around? What would the people in my life who love and care about me feel about the decision I'm making? Uh, what impact could this have on my life in general, good, bad, or indifferent? Like just, just run through a series of questions for them to really process this and think about it. Cause it's so much of this. Now we have to keep encouraging people to think critically about their decision-making and their life and their health, you know, and not just kind of get on a team and say, that's the team I'm on. I'm going with it. So let's assume an adolescent has decided that they want to experiment with cannabis and they're determined to do it. How long should they wait in order to stay safe? Legal In legal states, it's 21, right? So you could look at it from that perspective. From a brain development perspective, you could look at it at 25, which seems really irrational for a lot of people. Um, you know, Canada put out these federal guidelines a few years ago around risk reduction, harm reduction mm-hmm. related to cannabis. And they, they were pretty solid. I thought they were really interesting. Uh, but one of them, they said, it did talk about age and it said if you could, you know, it recommended waiting till at least 18. Mm. Now, gosh, I talked to 18 year olds and I think, whew, wait till you're 40. Uh, but I, <laughs> you know, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know if I can give a good answer to that because everyone's maturity level is going to be different. And some of those biological factors, whether it be their endogenous cannabinoid system or their own mental health, Sometimes maybe we don't know even know that at that point. Some of those, some of the, some of the mental health issues are really found to really full on come on in like late adolescence, early adulthood. Mm-hmm. So if if again if something like especially a strong cannabis product is introduced at that time, could exacerbate things. Who knows? With data we have now, I, I think a lot of people are sort of pumping the brakes on this and saying, "Hey, wait a minute! When the young, if you're a teenager." please abstain from everything if you can. The longer you wait to ever try anything, the better the outcome will be with it. And you don't have to try it, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the thing too. Right. You might be 20 and say, I don't, I'm not interested. I don't need to do this. But it's it's different the younger you are. You think of yourself at age, think of yourself at 13, 14, or 15 years old. Like I try to ask people to walk through that exercise. Think of what the clothes you were wearing, the bike you were riding, who you, <laughs> who you were in that moment. You didn't know yourself that well. You know, you don't know yourself that well at that time. You don't have a, a, a ton of self-awareness and physical development, social, emotional, mental development. It's a sensitive time. So to throw in a really intense experience, whether it be from a cannabis concentrate or too much of an edible or 
they didn't know what they were doing and ate, you know, four grams of psilocybin mushrooms or something and had an adverse response psychologically to that. Like there's risk with that. It can be an exacerbating event that can cause and lead to more of a psychological, an adverse psychological reaction for people at those eight. So I, I think like us being able to have that conversation with it's a it's a delicate thing to say i want you to be empowered and really understand this topic because i have data in front of me that says x number of teens are doing these things already so we need to empower them to think about that yet we don't want to just say yeah you're going to be the the message of you're going to do this anyway so be safe is a terrible message yeah it's completely putting out an expectation that this should be happening and people are going to do it it's more like my line around this is you know, you, you may be around this or you at some point later in life, you may try these certain things. So to have a really strong knowledge base and critical thinking skills around it is really important and empowering. And you also may be around it. So being around someone who maybe is engaging in something in an unsafe way, maybe it, it, you could help them. This all begs the next question. What can people do to reduce the risks associated with cannabis use? From Matt's perspective, that begins with cultivating a healthy amount of self-awareness regarding not only substance use, but health and wellness in general. There's a lot of stuff we could really look at in our life in general, I think. Um, and whether that gets overtly marked down in a journal or just some self-awareness right. and self-assessment about food we eat or movement in our physical movement and activity, stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting interesting one yeah around that the self-awareness piece and to have you know to be able to to do that and say wow you know i'm using cannabis way more than i want to be mm -hmm. and i've had students tell me that I, I i've had students say i basically start my day off smoking a concentrate and i don't want to i don't like it it doesn't really even make me feel good but it's just such a become such a way of being for me it's hard for me to get out from under it or I stopped using cannabis and I thought it was helping me with my anxiety and I thought it was helping me with my sleep, but I realized it was the opposite. It was actually making me more anxious, intermittent anxiety with depending on how high I got at that moment. And it was actually my sleep, it was rough for the first week or two when I stopped using, but now it's way better. And I, I sleep deeper and I sleep long. I don't wake up in the middle of the night, stuff like that. So it's interesting. Some of the things we think it might be doing for us, maybe it's not. So I think it's important, anything in life to take away something. <clears throat> to, it really helps you reevaluate it. And beyond all of that, Matt had a simple recommendation to reduce risk that was echoed by many of my other guests. So I think my advice would be one, starting off small, like, with like low potency flour and having small amounts, whatever age you are when you first try engage in this. Um, and don't start off by smoking dabs, you know, smoking concentrates. I asked veteran cannabis and cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Ethan Rousseau, about his thoughts on minimizing risks associated with cannabis use. Right away, he wanted to bring attention to the diverse and sometimes uncertain quality of cannabis products on the market. First and foremost uh, is an issue of the preparation. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's sort of the wild west out there. I can't vouch for the <laughs> utility or safety of any preparation without a certificate of analysis. And yeah. I want to know exactly what's in it, not just the cannabidiol content, 
but other cannabinoids, the terpenoid content. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to see evidence that it's safe, that there's no pesticide residue, microbiological contamination or heavy metal contamination. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, I just won't comment. And I would urge uh, consumers to be extremely diligent in trying to acquire that information. My bias is that that information should be available for every product, whether medical or recreational at point of sale. I'm not a proponent of smoking anything, particularly in a Mm -hmm. medical setting. Uh, Vaporization potentially is a safer approach. But when we're talking about medical uses of cannabis, we're almost always uh, talking about uh, chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, Best approaches are for oral agents or uh, tinctures, say, in the mouth uh, even. Uh, And there are reasons for that. When that type of preparation is used, it's got a much longer Mm half-life. Basically, the need for more frequent dosing is limited. Often people can treat their condition with dosing two or three times a day. This offers other advantages in that there are fewer peaks and valleys of activity. Um, You avoid uh, what can happen with inhalation where there's a rapid increase in blood and brain levels that is going to uh, make a person prone to psychoactive side effects, specifically anxiety, paranoia, Mm -hmm. things of this sort that are much less likely with a slow titration, slow raising of dose, Mm -hmm with an oral agent. Um, And therefore, the risks risks of intoxication, reinforcement, uh, withdrawal, and all these other effects can be minimized. Um, Again, the ingredients are key. Mm -hmm. Uh, People need to know. uh, And that can only come through regulation because it is a situation, I can say, without a lot of fear, of contradiction that companies are not going to uh, produce lab results unless it's mandated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's all about yeah. the bottom line. And if something isn't required, uh, companies are not going to spend the money. Um, but there's a happy balance there. It has to come on the side uh, of safety. So it's clear that the first step of minimizing risk is to ensure you find clean, high-quality products. But what comes next? Many people already understand that it can be a very uncomfortable and unpleasant experience if you take too much cannabis. So what can people do to avoid this? I spoke with Dr. Jason Miller about the issue. Jason is a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine that's also an expert regarding the clinical use of medicinal plants. Recently, he started having a lot of his patients come to him to ask about cannabis, so he began taking note of what their experiences and their outcomes were, in order to be prepared to counsel others on the potential pitfalls and the promises of cannabis use. The first goal, he noted, was to develop strategies to avoid taking too much in the first place. You know, we need to have some, you know, some safety nets in case you fall into that, that sort of pitfall, mm-hmm. that, that pit. And, and also, like you said, how do we avoid getting there? And I think the, the, the most important thing about that is looking at the endocannabinoid receptor system, right? And, and the way that it's tuned in each person's body and how it, it's, it's a system that builds a relationship to cannabinoids, whether they're endogenous mm-hmm. or if they're coming from you know, the plant, from exogenous. And so always starting with a small amount of a THC-rich mm-hmm. you know, cannabis extract 
um, is a really good way to go. And, you know, if you want to start with something small, I would say something like a milligram or less as a dose. It's a really great okay, small that low. place to start. That's where, I mean, if, if, if people have a known history of cannabis use and they have a, you know, a relationship with it, that's one thing. You know, you can start them with, with more than that. But mm-hmm. for some people who just have never experienced it, a lot of people are really interested and they want to experience it. One thing I've found with medicine in general is that if someone has an overdose experience where they take too much of anything and they get sick mm-hmm. from it, they don't ever want to take that thing again. And right. it may still be a really beneficial medicine for them. And so I'd rather start slow, take our time and build to the right dose rather than risk having that initial, you know, bad negative experience. All right. So let's say you've done your best to find your minimum effective dose and you still went too far. And now you're in the middle of an uncomfortable cannabis experience. What can be done? Well, there's some real simple things. I mean, even some of the older ideas, just like drinking a cup of warm milk or just a couple ounces of warm milk is a real simple, calming thing mm. for the mind. Um, you know, but there's there's a lot of other things that we think of that have a history of use. Citrus, you know, and, and really this, you know, the citrus essential oils, whether it be tangerine. Right. Um, and then, of course, things like black pepper, you know, which you and I have talked about a bit, and the, mm-hmm. the rich, yeah. rich source of uh, beta-caryophylline, right? And it's another compound like limonene that shows up in cannabis itself mm-hmm. as, you know, as a modulator of the THC effect on on the brain, right? And um, Yeah, now yeah. we know that beta-caryophylline interacts with CP2 receptors and um, is affecting the endocannabinoid system in pretty direct ways, um, mm-hmm. even though we still don't quite understand exactly what's going on there. Um, and then also in black pepper, there is, you know, some pinene and stuff too, that would also, um, kind of play into that and kind of going back to the warm milk thing, trying to like calm the system down. Right. Um, I know that pinene can, um, kind of modulate acetylcholine levels and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, that, and that's interesting because, you know, a lot of the compounds that, that have been shown to calm a THC overdose effect, you know, mm-hmm. like a, a paranoia kind of heart rate increase, like you said, some sweats, you know, that calming that down has been associated with these, uh, these compounds, like we're talking about pinene and limonene. And I think, you know, all of them have this other aspect where they actually act as cholinergics, where they support mm-hmm. the acetylcholine transmission in the brain. So they kind of support smooth neurological flow. In case you don't know, Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter in our brains that, among many things, is responsible for influencing things like sleep, arousal, memory, and attention. And then they also, you know, in doing that, one of the ways they do that, I should say, is that they block the acetylcholinesterase enzyme. And that's the enzyme that, you know, naturally breaks down the acetylcholine once it's been in the synapse it's already kind of the message has been sent and received then it needs to be you know we need to stop sending the message so that's what that Mm -hmm. enzyme does but if that enzyme is overactive um which happens in a lot of people especially in aging and it's associated with you know dementia the lewy bodies the you know you get into alzheimer's disease that, that these are all associated with somehow a breakdown in that acetylcholine transmission and that acetylcholinesterase enzyme becomes overactive. It's also, you know, an oxidative and inflammatory process. There's a lot of drivers, right, to, to this, this mm-hmm. sort of error in enzymatic activity. And these compounds, the limonene, uh, the pinene, the caryophylline, uh, they all have data now showing that they actually inhibit, you know, peroxide-induced cell death in neurons. They actually mm. protect neurons. Yeah. And some of them actually block the acetylcholinesterase activity, preserving the acetylcholine. So 
there's something, you know, a real deep neurological link there to, um, you know, what's happening as far as like the healing properties of the brain and sort of cell transmission and how these terpenes have, have a, a really positive effect. What are, what are some other uh, medicinal plants that would have that kind of calming effect on the body or, you know, support acetylcholine and that sort of thing? What are some other herbs you'd recommend? Well, one of my favorites is Passiflora, you know, passion flower, right? Mm. And that's a passion flower is a wonderful, uh, just, just central nervous system calming agent that also works really well with the THC overdose. You know, it's, it's sort of like calms the central nervous system, calms the heart, kind of softens the mind and that kind of overthinking and sort of mm-hmm. reduces the monkey mind effect. It's really good like <laughs> yeah. that. Um, and then what, you know, probably the chief herb, and I mean, it, it, it has been used and could be used um, alone is, is sweet flag or a, a chorus calamus, you know, ah, it's really yes, yes. Like a traditional Chinese and also an Ayurvedic herb used for a long time for, for cognition. Um, and also it's been used in flavorings now and, you know, there's all kinds of different compounds in it. And, and it's, it's a root, it, right? Yeah, the calamus root, exactly. Root, yeah. That sweet flag plant, and then you've got this root, and then the root is dried, you know, and then, then it's extracted into an ethanol. Most of the time nowadays, it's an ethanol extraction um, that then you get this really nice uh, blend of terpenes and flavonoids that are, you know, really powerful in, in this plant. And one of them is the acerones, right? Alpha mm-hmm. and beta acerone that both yep. have strong activity in protecting the brain from neuronal cell death. But the beta acerone particularly um, does a really nice job of calming that THC-induced overdose and that overdose effect of all the kind of neurological hyperexcitability that starts happening. And it just calms it down. I mean, even if you just had one thing, if you could only have one thing, mm-hmm. I would definitely choose a chorus calamus. And I wish I could go back to those couple of experiences I've had you know, <laughs> where, I, where I had too much THC and have a bottle of a chorus calamus there and say, oh, I'll just take a couple droppers of this tincture because I have given this to, I don't know how many patients, and I've even, some of the local dispensaries now have been buying this material from me at you know, regular intervals to pass on to their patients. Because, mm. you know, in, in the event that people are like, hey, I really want to get going on this THC regimen for whatever condition, and I'm a little bit worried because I'm sensitive. Well, then you say, okay, great. Well, you know, you can go ahead and start increasing your dose a little faster. And if you hit that point where you've gone over, if you use a combination of a chorus and some other herbs, or even, like I said, even if you just had the chorus, it would really help to bring it down. And I've, and I've, I've tested this out, you know, in a number of people and it's been very successful. Are there any, um, like health risks or anything like that with calamus that people should be aware of? Is it something that they can use just kind of um, at will, or do they need to kind of watch their intake or anything like that? Well, you bring up a good point, you know, and again, this is not an herb that's meant for long-term chronic ingestion. You know, these, these kind of high potency terpenes and things like there's different, there's different um, species and different like variants of the plant where they, like the tetraploidy varieties that come Mm -hmm. from parts of India have very high concentrations of beta acerone. Like some of the essential oils have like 75% beta acerone. And at that concentration, you're getting to this kind of like, you know, essential oil terpene substance that, you know, has a very strong aromatic quality. And, you know, we don't want to take that in all the time. It can, it it could eventually overwhelm our ability to kind of quench its, its own oxidative properties. Mm. And then we could get some damage, you know, whether it be liver damage or other things. So we don't really know, but there have been associated toxicity studies done on some of these compounds and a lot of compounds, you know, you just look at, if you took it too much over too, too long of a time, it could be a problem. But in the short term, where you're just taking it for a THC overdose, there's no risk at all. You know, on, on a single dose, no way. Um, it's just if you ended up taking high doses long term, I wouldn't advise that at all. Yeah. So you're telling me I shouldn't uh, 
start smoking bowls all the time and just following it up with calamus every day. Well, that's, <laughs> you bring up a really good point because, you know, it's kind of that thing where, gosh, you know, I got to go to work, but I'd really love to get stoned. You know, I could imagine people, <laughs> you know, just like smoke a big bong load or two and be, get really high for 15 minutes and then be like, oh, I got to work. So take a big load of calamus and then go to work. Right. Right. Uh, that's I'm not advising that approach. <laughs> yeah. Definitely yeah. Not. Um, yeah. And I, I think I think there's a lot to that, to what you're saying about, you know, using it in a very, um, you know, just a very specific manner where you're using it to as a medicine to help people who are building a medicinal regimen out of THC be right. able to control the potential for overdose and give them some security, you know, that they could they could, um, you know, be, be be assured that if they get to that dreadful headful kind of place that we can bring we can calm it down i was gonna say too one thing i thought of was you know with that with that kind of warm milk is the cardamom you know uh cardamom oh, yeah warm milk is another one the elateria there's a lot of great uh compounds in there too that are that have been associated with calming that sort of thc overdose effect and if you forget all of those suggestions there are some products on the market now that claim to combat cannabis intoxication I do have a product that's out of Arizona. It's called Undo, U-N-D-O-O. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard and of that. They're wonderful. That's Peggy Anderson, the founder of a company called Canna Help You, which is dedicated to providing seniors with education about cannabis. In one recent study, it was found that the demographic of cannabis users over the age of 65 is growing faster than any other demographic of older adults. Many of these users don't want to be intoxicated, and are particularly concerned about taking too much THC. Peggy shared some of her experience with this issue. And uh, uh, if you smoke or vape uh, and you take one undo with 22 ounces, 24 ounces of water, you'll, you'll come down after 10 minutes. And I have tried that product, and it does really work. And uh, with, with edibles, it takes 30 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. But I've, I've had two people that um, love that THC chocolate, and uh, mm -hmm. next thing you know, they've got 50 milligrams <laughs> in them. And, uh, yeah, too much, but yeah, uh, that's a good product. And again, I think I just have to reassure them that there's no, they're not going to die. Um, mm -hmm. Might be uncomfortable for a while, um, and if they are, you know, I I always give them my number, and I kind of debating right now offering the service of sitting with somebody for the first two hours. Yeah, uh, just to be there with them, and and so that they're they're not scared, and the anxiety does go mm -hmm. up, which we're trying right. to go down. <laughs> yeah, is there any advice that you that you give to seniors that if they've gone too far, they're having an uncomfortable experience, they don't have access to undo or you know a product like that? Are there other things that they can do to try to um, calm that anxiety, that paranoia down, or you know try to get some relief <laughs> from that uncomfortable experience? Yeah. Um, a lot of water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Much water as you can handle. And then I, I call it distraction. Put something on television that's just going to take your mind off of what you're mm -hmm. doing. Um, that's what I did with this woman who ended up in the emergency room, but she, um, <laughs> her daughter took her because she was out of control. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, and again, that was a weird thing. This was about two years ago where she had some um, taffy and she had a quarter of it and she did fine. She slept well and she got mm -hmm. to that last quarter and that's where all the THC was. So, you know, Interesting. that, that so was early not... in the day. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't when... wasn't a very uniform product. Right, yeah. not, not two years ago for sure. Also, CBD is known to reduce the effects of THC to some extent by changing the way that THC actually binds to cannabinoid receptors. So that's another option available. 
Alright, let's review what we've learned so far across these past three episodes. While the exact level of toxicity of cannabinoids is unclear, we know that cannabinoids are orders of magnitude less toxic than caffeine or nicotine, and it's physically impossible to lethally overdose on herbal cannabis. As far as extracts and concentrates are concerned, there's still a lot of unknowns. There's no long-term safety data available yet to understand how chronic consumption of cannabis concentrates might affect health. However, we do know that a variety of contaminants in cannabis can become concentrated in extracts presenting greater risk to consumers, particularly those that have pre-existing health issues. Although cannabis is unlikely to present the risk of a lethal overdose, there are still health risks to users, including risks to lung health, heart health, mouth health, immune system health, and mental health. Many of these health risks stem from smoking and can be minimized or eliminated altogether by using other consumption methods, like vaporizing, I'm not really talking about vape pens here, I'm talking about true low temperature vaporizing, or using edibles or sublingual products like tinctures under the tongue. Naive users are at greater risk for experiencing the psychological adverse effects than experienced users are, so it's best to start with a low dose and take it slow. Cannabis can potentially interact with other medications. Usually this leads to sedation, but in some cases, particularly with CBD, cannabis could slow down the body's ability to metabolize drugs, resulting in elevated concentrations of those drugs in the blood. For anyone taking medications with narrow safety windows, or if your medications have a grapefruit warning on them, this could potentially be dangerous and you should seek medical oversight when using cannabis. Some people with pre-existing health conditions could be at greater risk to suffer adverse events from cannabis use. If you're using cannabis and have a heart condition, compromised immune system, diabetes, or mental health conditions, it's really best to work with a healthcare professional to make sure you stay safe. Cannabis use in adolescence can exacerbate underlying mental health issues. In general, it's best for young people to wait as long as possible before trying cannabis, ideally until the age of 25, as this is the age when the brain is thought to have reached most of its maturity and when most mental health issues will reveal themselves. If you do decide to use cannabis, start with a low dose and slowly work your way up. If you end up getting too high, there are a number of home remedies to counteract the effects of THC, including things like drinking water, or drinking warm milk, eating peppercorns or black pepper, taking tinctures of other medicinal plants like passionflower or calamus root, chewing on pine nuts, or even drinking lemonade. There are even some targeted cannabis antidotes now on the market. Additionally, CBD can also counteract the effects of THC to some extent. Finally, if you consume cannabis regularly, it's important to perform regular abstinence breaks and wellness audits to evaluate your relationship with cannabis to ensure that your cannabis use is not negatively impacting your health. So, is cannabis safe? I would say in regulated states in general, I feel pretty confident that most products you get are safe in the sense that they're, you know, probably don't have pesticides and solvents. Um, they probably are fairly consistent in their dose. Well, the other thing is um, in the 70s and 60s, you didn't know what you were getting. And I yeah. reassure my seniors that I'm talking to that this is safer than it's ever been before. It's generally well known that nearly anything can be toxic when consumed in a particular way or in a particular dose. 
Going back to the early days of toxicology in the early 1500s, the Swiss physician, alchemist, and astrologer Paracelsus said, All things are poison, and nothing is without poison. It is the dose alone that makes a thing not a poison. Today, this is often simplified to the saying, The dose makes the poison. This applies to everything, including the water we drink and the air we breathe. Nothing in life is without risk. But in general, cannabis is safer physiologically than many substances we engage every day, like coffee and some of our foods. While there are some rare exceptions and contraindications to be aware of, cannabis, as long as it's clean, seems to be pretty safe and well-tolerated by most people, especially at low doses. Deaths attributed to cannabis are extremely rare, and most adverse events that could arise from cannabis use, like hyperemesis syndrome, are usually reversible. Now, if you want to minimize risk, in general you want to wait as long as possible before you decide to try cannabis for the first time, ideally once you get past that age of between like 22 to 25 years old. You want to try to avoid smoking, because a lot of these health risks we've covered are a result of smoking more so than cannabis itself. You want to only use cannabis of a known quality, and you want to start with a low dose and slowly work your way up to find your minimum effective dose. And remember, if you do take too much THC and are having an uncomfortable experience, there are a variety of things you can do to help ease that uncomfortable feeling, and most importantly, the feeling will eventually pass, and you'll be fine. I know that some of you listening might be wondering about the issues of substance abuse and addiction as risks which I specifically didn't really cover in these episodes. Well, don't worry, there's going to be an episode dedicated to that issue, as well as issues like pediatric cannabis use and cannabis use while pregnant or breastfeeding. So stay tuned as we revisit the issue of cannabis safety and other episodes throughout this and future seasons. And with that, I'm your host, Jason Wilson. Until next time, stay curious. Thanks and take it easy. Special thanks to our guests that were so gracious in spending time with me for interviews that helped construct not just this episode, but other episodes throughout the season. To check out the citations for this episode, and there are plenty, you can check out the show notes by visiting cacpodcast.com. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. If you like what we're doing here and want to support the show please consider supporting us by liking and sharing this episode with your friends and family you can also choose to support us on patreon at patreon.com natural learning enterprises where you can get access to the full-length guest interviews behind the scenes content and a lot more you can also connect with curious about cannabis on social media on instagram facebook twitter and youtube Because it is only through knowledge that we can safely protect them.